It's a peaceful protest. We walking, raising awareness. Some of the injustice that we've been seeing is not okay. And as a young person, you gotta you gotta listen to our perspective. Our voices need to be heard. People are gonna look back. Our kids are gonna look back at this and say, "You were a part of that." I got a grandfather that marched next to Dr. King in the '60s, and he was amazing. He would be proud to see us all here. We gotta keep pushing forward. Sports are like the reward of a functional society. Sirius XM Sports presents Forward Progress, a weekly open conversation on race and sports in America. Here are your hosts, Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Good to be back with you. The program returns, the one that is the cross-section. Race, sports, we bring it together. Some love it, some hate it. We're not going anywhere. That's the way it's going to be. That's Kirk Morrison. I'm Jason Jackson. Uh, a little bit later in the program, uh, generational orange leather. That, that's how I'm going to approach that. <laughs> We're taking all the good books yeah. and providing them for holiday dynamics. The Grunfeld family um, will be front and center in just a little bit. A little bit later on the program, um, we're going to dive inside a space that was just sold to me and for very good reason. Um, th- just wonderful opportunities for good people uh, in college football, even. Yes. Which, which seems like an oxymoron, but I say it out <laughs> loud. Uh, but first, a really cool story about the advancement of the NBA Social Justice Coalition. Kirk, it was August yeah. Uh, when we last talked about this, it was a year ago before that when we first talked about that. We, we, we kind of we, we keep uh, uh, our focus on these wonderful uh, offshoots of what was terrible stuff. As we know, the NBA Social Justice Coalition um, is all about uh, making sure they're, they're locked in on specific justice right. issues, um, particularly uh, what's going on with jail time served, what's going on with police reform, what's going on uh, in our communities, basically uh, to change laws, not just continue to protest and keep awareness going. We'll talk more about that in just a second. But um, Kirk, what was really cool is that they created a presence in a space where their voice is going to carry to millions all the time. They, They produced and really put out their Twitter, their Instagram, their Facebook, and they didn't just go out there. Right. They went out there with two minutes of powerful images <laughs> and words to get people locked in. Let's take a listen. This coalition of different people has been inspiring. It is our responsibility to take what we've learned from history, push forward and make a better life. To be in this situation today is just an ongoing cycle. The time is now that we have to break that cycle. Being able to use this platform to have conversations, keep topics going, educate each other, that's what I'm here for. Our goal is really simple. We want to take moments of protest, moments of people power like we saw last year, and turn them into public policy. We want to change laws. More than two dozen arenas and stadiums across the country have opened up to voters. Some of the most accessible sites aimed at pushing turnout in minority communities. For the young generation, if I can say one thing, is have the strength and the courage to speak up. Every voice is, is truly, truly significant and super powerful. 
We just had a roundtable discussion with the residents. America has always been the land of opportunity where people get second chances. We're making progress. It was important to create those institutions that could focus on these issues full time. But I think there was a realization that if we work together, we can be incredibly powerful. We have a moment in time. Our kids are going to look back at this and say, you are a part of that. It starts with our young generation, with the future. Continuing to go out there and, and saying that this isn't right, standing up for what they believe in. It's our job to be, keep our foot on the gas because the only way it's going to happen is if we continue to talk about it. To be in this moment and have a coalition that is dedicated to doing this work on behalf of the NBA community, that's the next step and next evolution in that unbroken chain of advocacy undertaken by players. So this coalition was established as a partnership with the NBA, um, its players, its coaches, uh, and... It, it really, over the past year, has done a good job being in places like this. Right. And, and doing things on the right NBA platforms. Now, by getting into this space where every day, all month, every year, you can get the feeling about what they're trying to do when they're addressing racial and social uh, inequality issues uh, is is. Just absolutely fabulous uh, because it's it's permeating, keep that message pounding, but also sharing the impact the association's having in this space. Absolutely. It's it's keeping the conversation going. It's also uh, some of the issues that I think a lot of men, um, just people in our, in our society, but I think just players in general see a lot of that they can have an impact on. And a lot of it is policing. A lot of it is wanting to change laws. Uh, a lot of it is to turn what used to be frowned upon, but turn it into public policy, like the rights of people that have been overlooked for many, many years and say, hey, you know what? This this actually is not right. <laughs> and we need to change that, you know, and I think that's I think what's been huge. And then I think voter turnout. And we saw that uh, in this past election. People came out in droves who probably have never had voted in their life, but they realized the power of the vote. And I think now, once you saw that power in the aspect of a national presidential race, you realize that the power also, like, it, it falls on our local principalities as well. So all of this, I think, has been, has been great because it brings eyeballs to situations um, it brings eyeballs to issues that I feel like have been ignored and you kind of just put it to your councilman. You just put it to the local person there. And now you're like, no, no, I want to talk about this. How can we improve on this and not just go with the status quo? We heard the voices of Drew Holiday, Carmelo Anthony, Carl Anthony Towns, uh, Malcolm Brogdon and Donovan Mitchell. Also, uh, the executive director, uh, James Cadogan. Uh, who was a guest on our program uh, during the late summer, all a part of that messaging. It's such a wonderful kind of bridge, really, that connects all of the NBA uh, because you have ownership in the group, you have coaches in the group, and players in the group. Uh, that's why this is an initiative that has teeth, is you have every vested entity involved in this. 
Yeah, I think when you have all of those entities involved, you realize that it's not just one, it's the entire backing. And now everyone is aiming to address the racial inequity that we see throughout basketball, throughout everyday life. Um, just what we've kind of neglected. And I know that being uh, caught up in sports in a season, uh, our focus has always been head down and grind and trying to get to the NBA finals and the playoffs and all-star weekend. And then you realize that, that there is a, a bigger platform that we have. There's a bigger platform here. I think the NBA realizes that, but it's not just the NBA. When you have other organizations, the WNBA, the owners, everybody. Now, now everybody's involved. It's not just one league. It's everybody. So the message is not just heard on one level. It's heard on many different levels. And the more, I'd, I'd rather have more allies than more enemies. And the more allies definitely make it to be that, hey, everyone is understanding of what's at stake. We should note that the coalition, at NBA Coalition, by the way, when you're on all those platforms, Twitter, right. Instagram, and Facebook, um, they might even have a TikTok they didn't tell us about. <laughs> they got it all. Snapchat we'll and everything. We'll see if they're kicking it for the youngins <laughs> in that space. But this council was the birth child of what the WNBA was already doing for a little bit. By yeah. the way. Mm -hmm. It was the WNBA and the, uh, and the WNBA Players Association, which established a social justice council in July of 2020, um, when announcing its bubble season was dedicated to social justice. So the ladies, and you shouted them out, that they are yeah. the tip of the spear, which is awesome. Oh, but just, you know, obviously the, the women fight for even more than just the men, right? They, they fight for equality. Uh, you know, we had talked about it a long time ago with the NCAA, not the NBA. We're just talking about like just women's rights and how the NCAA men's basketball tournament was treated one way compared to the women's tournament. So women are always fighting for equality, you know, to be just equal pairing of their counterparts of the men. So now to see that they've already had started something and now the NBA is now in arms with them. The owners are now in arms with them. And now you have this, this group of people who are all fighting for the same thing, who are all understanding that this is a bigger, bigger horizon that we're about to, uh, like, I guess, fall onto. Like this is bigger for our future of our game. And the people who we need to help are the people who sometimes aren't heard, right? That's the hard part is that a lot of people who watch the NBA sometimes aren't heard. And I, I go back to when I was a little kid, you know, I, I used to sit in the rafters, man. I used to, I, I could, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can, uh, I thought I could touch Jesus sometimes, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, God, what's up, brother? I'm up here with you. Um, that's how high I sat. And, you know, my voice probably didn't mean much. But I feel like now the the way that the NBA and the coalition and everyone's kind of going about it, I feel like I'm just a part of this, even from where I sat to where I am now, giving the people who once were not heard, now giving them a voice to say, hey, how can I be better? Well, this is what you guys can do better. This is how you can help us help you. So I just think overall, man, it's been uh, something that, is still growing. It is still no, no, uh, it's not a finished product by no means, but the conversation has started. The conversation is there. And I think it's something that I, I love to watch how it's starting to blossom. Yeah. It's been magnificent. As you noted, the NBA arena is open for voters during the 
2020 presidential election and teams have held virtual conversations with NBA stars and leaders and uh, work such as policing. And I, got a, government. I got a question, Jax, on that. Yeah. That was like never a thing before, remember? Like voting would always take place at the church, church at or the school, local assembly right. hall, the school. And, you know, I, it's, it's funny, but not, not funny. I, I won't say it's funny, but there are some people who may not ever walk into an arena. American Airlines mm-hmm. Arena. Remember when they walk into SoFi Stadium over here in Los Angeles? It, it ain't free. It ain't free. Oh, no, it ain't free. No. Oh, it costs. It costs for a tour yeah. around SoFi Stadium. But just to share that moment for people to feel a part of it, like this is something in your community. And to have the NBA, you know, NFL, I think the people on board to allow people to come in and vote some of these initiatives. I just, I, that, it just kind of had crossed my mind there because I know, you know, my grandma and, you know, uncles and stuff like that, they, you know, they don't, they, they're not going to a game, but to go and vote and call me up. Hey, man, I was in that SoFi. What you, oh, you went to a game? No, I went to vote, but I was in there. That thing, nice. So that's offering an opportunity also for people who would never have this uh, chance of looking or being a part now, this is just another way. So I just thought that was pretty cool, what you had just mentioned, just the allowing, because that, that, that never was a thing for me growing up, you know? Yeah, and it should be allowed, by the way, across the board. There were a lot yes. of municipalities that blocked that usage, mm-hmm. and it was, there was a common thread. This is a fact, right? Yeah. Um, it happened here in Miami, and, and I know that the Miami Heat were livid. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Republican leadership was standing in the way of allowing that type of space. And listen, the, the data is what it is. This is not refutable information. The more people that voted tends to lean a little left, the fewer people that voted leans right. Correct. And it's the challenge of the grand old party is that it's a smaller party. <laughs> and, and if those are the tactics that they want to get to. And, and listen, they, the, the right has been extremely aggressive yes. in changing the flow of the vote, both by law and by, you know, these types of things. This was a late ad for a lot of municipalities. And so could definitely hide behind, you know, some of those dynamics. And I, right. I, I know there might even been a bit of a issue because I know um, the now FTX arena is a county owned facility. And ah. so you can kind of have those dynamics. And it's like, well, in theory, so are schools. So mm-hmm. why are we See? even having a discussion about that being a conflict of interest? Um, the bottom line is make it as, as available and as ready as possible. And, and what a great initiative. Uh, See, look, you, edu- you educate me on, on the more now. You educate me on. Now I see why. I see what happens now when you open up, like you mentioned, these large venues to allow voters to come in and also to accessibility because it's right there in your own neighborhood. Instead of having to travel eight to 10 blocks away. It's amazing. But we'll keep an eye on everything going on with the, uh, the coalition, the organization released a formal statement back in the spring. I think it was May on uh, policing reform legislation ahead of the one year anniversary of uh, George Floyd's death. That was, that was a, it's a plank yeah. that you walk out on. Oh, yeah. You know, that is a lightning rod for 
um, for the right. And a lot of folks who are in ownership politically are in that space. And so to be able to put down, you know, some of the things that are just about party and make it about what's best for the people, the people who are cheering for my team in this city, doing the things uh, that are more in line with the demographics of the town than with your own politics, oftentimes is a challenge. And so I applaud this group that has six folks that are billionaires and better um, mm-hmm. signing off on something that could be seen as controversial and, and want a line of political thinking. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's understood now. You know what I mean? I think before it was um, something that people tiptoed around, but I think it's, uh, it's understood in many different uh, municipalities and it is something that continues to grow. That, that, that's the part that I always take away is the continued education and growth. Let's take our first break. When we come back, we're, we're gonna, we're, we told you we're taking care of your holiday gifts. <laughs> we got another great book for you to consider. It's called By the Grace of the Gang. It's a detailed, beautiful story about the Grunfeld family and what they went through and the role of basketball play. Dan wrote it. That's Ernie Grunfeld's son, Ernie, who starred at Tennessee and mm-hmm. in the NBA before becoming an executive, uh, most notably with uh, the Washington Wizards. Uh, his son, Dan, will be with us when we come back here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Forward Progress on Sirius XM Radio. It's Jackson, and we continue on. Thanks for staying with us. Uh, we told you this holiday we were going to get you all set with fantastic things to put in the stockings under the tree. And we got another great story for you to get your hands on. It's called By the Grace of the Game. The author is Dan Grunfeld. He joins us here on Forward Progress. Dan, first of all, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, I heard you over on NBA Radio with uh, Frank and Scal. And uh, listen, I, I hope they help. They're not going to help as much as we do here. Right. <laughs> much more heady discussion uh, about race and sports. And and uh, the, the cultural experience of families that were trying to escape hell Mm -hmm. uh, was a story that your family had to endure. Um, Ernie Grunfeld, your father, the only player in NBA history whose parents survived the Holocaust. And that, that alone uh, is a staggering statement. Mm -hmm. Um, It speaks to me that there were probably players before him who had folks that may have perished in that space uh, or at least family members uh, but let's first start off with where we always like to start with authors. Uh, these stories, this is your life's story, yeah. right? So this has been in we in you and with you for you, all of your remembrance. Putting it to text is another thing. Uh, walk us through uh, your minds. Uh, there's, a, there's a level of heroic arrogance needed uh, to write a book. Um, and so, Dan, walk us through your process. Yeah, no doubt about it. Jason Kirk, thanks so much for having me. Uh, like you said, this story has always been in me, right? Since, since, I was, since I was born and I write in the book, my birth was scheduled around the NBA calendar. You know, my dad was playing <laughs> for the Knicks and so my, my parents 
and schedule my birth so between two of his road trips so he could be there when I was born and then he could be there for my bris, which is on the eighth day of life, you know, uh, in Jewish custom. And so, I mean, quite literally, I was born into the game of basketball and born into this story. And, you know, still to this day, I'm so close to, to my grandmother. She's 96 years old. She lives in the Bay Area, 25 minutes from me and my wife is doing amazing. And, you know, she survived and, you know, seven of her immediate family members didn't. And my, <laughs> my grandfather lost everybody. And so for me growing up, understanding what my grandparents went through, what my dad went through to get to America, to become, you know, a basketball player and an executive after that, it's, it's always meant the world to me. And so uh, I've done a lot of writing over the course of my life. And after I retired from my own career, I said, this is a story I want to tell. So it took more than five years, but the book was released last week. You know, Dan, when, when did you know, at what age did you start to understand that what your kind of family heritage had kind of went through, had come from? When did you truly start to understand like, well, this is a different, this isn't what yeah. most families, uh, this isn't how most families come together. You know, I, kids are perceptive, you know? So when right. I was really young, I didn't know the details, but I knew that things had happened. You know, I've always right. been really close to my grandmother. She has a very thick accent. I know she's from Europe and a lot of her family, you know, didn't make it over. And so, you know, you know these things, but as I got older and more mature and I asked more questions, I, I really, the, the story kind of came into full view and, and particularly my dad's piece of it, right? Because my dad, if you talk to him, he just sounds like a New Yorker because he came to New York City <laughs> when he's nine years old, but his native language is Hungarian. You know, my dad was born under communism in Romania. So to really understand his journey from fleeing communism, coming to America as a refugee. My dad, unfortunately, lost his brother when they got to the States to leukemia. So a, a big tragedy there. And he just went to the playground in Queens to make friends and learn English. And that's where he found basketball. So as I got older and as I matured, I really started to learn that story. And that's why, you know, it meant so much to me to tell it. Dan, there's a feeling in this text and the way that you present it. And I want you to tell the story for our listeners. Not, not so much they won't read the book, but <laughs> in that your father really didn't have your grandparents' full understanding of what was really happening for him in basketball. So how did that all work out? Or, or, or was that really as much of a, of a secret growth up until, obviously, it was, you know, to, you, there comes a point where you realize your boy's pretty bad. Yeah, know? exactly. Um, listen, my, my book is called By the Grace of the Game. And I titled that for a reason. You know, basketball is really heaven sent for my family. And uh, so my grandparents didn't see my dad play basketball until he was 17 years old. And by the way, my grandfather was a great sportsman in Europe. He was a world-ranked ping pong player and kind of a semi-professional soccer player. So, you know, six foot three, big strapping guy. He, he loves sports, but you know, these are Holocaust survivors who came to America. They were just work, work, work. So they had a fabric store in the Bronx. They never saw my dad play. Uh, they knew that he was playing basketball and that he enjoyed it and that's all it was for them. But they got a call at their store one day from his high school coach when he was a junior. They said, hey, you have to see this guy play. And, uh, you know, I, and they, they went to the gym and they saw him and, you know, and on the court after that game, my grandfather said to him, because my grandfather used to make my dad come to their fabric store to work. And my grandpa said, you never come to the store again. You just play basketball, we'll take care of the rest. And, you know, a year later, he was an All-American, one of the most highly recruited players in the country. Right. Then he went to Tennessee and had a legendary career. So mm -hmm. the rocket ship had taken off at that point. Did your dad think that they would be upset, like at the folly of game playing, even though your grandfather was an was athlete himself? No, his parents were so loving and accepting. And so I don't think he had concerns about it. 
Uh, I just think, you know, he was doing his thing. His parents were working a lot. I, I, I don't think that he was ever scared that they wouldn't, wouldn't approve of what he did. And by the time they saw him, the level that he was at, you know, he was already like an all city player in New York. And guys, the, the crazy thing about the story is he came to America at nine years old and he had never touched a basketball. You know, and he didn't speak any English. And, and, and that's when his brother passed, you know. And so really at the p playground in New York City is where he learned this game. And not that long after, he just became the sensation. So it's, it's, it's a pretty remarkable story. You know, I think one of the things now that when you do tell this story, how many people have come and reached out to you that maybe had more stories that you weren't aware of in telling this particular one? Oh, so many. It's been so cool, uh, you know, from all over the world stories about my dad as a player. And one of the cool things is, listen, my dad was an amazing scorer. He graduated from Tennessee as the school's all-time leading scorer and as the second leading scorer in the history of the SEC. And guys, you know what kind of basketball yeah. conference the <laughs> SEC is, right? right. That, that was 1977. So to this day, he's still the fifth leading scorer in the history of the SEC. So that just gives you a sense of how many buckets this guy was getting, right? But, <laughs> but what's really cool is that people don't tell me about that. They say, Dan, there was never a loose ball that he didn't dive on. There was never a play that he didn't give his heart to, you know, and a play that he didn't, a ball they didn't hustle for. And I've been telling people, read the book. You'll see why. You know, when you come to America with nothing, with a background that he did, you're going to, you're going to grind and you're going to, you're going to play hard. And so, you know, that's been really amazing. I've had people reach out who knew my uncle in Romania, you know, before they came to America, which is really meaningful because he passed away, you know, and I'm named after him, you know, so, so really people from all over the world sharing stories about my family. It's, it's been amazing. Dan Grunfeld, he is the author by the grace of the game. Make sure you pick it up. Uh, Dan, walk me through what had to be just one of the most amazing moments for your family. And all of the success is also Olympic gold. And to be on a world stage uh, with everything that had happened over the previous 25, 30 years, to get to this moment for your family and your father's on a gold medal podium for the United States of America with a gold medal. I, how did that radiate for everybody? I, I'm gonna take you back to 76, but before I do, I want you to know that to this day, there's a panoramic picture of the opening ceremonies of the 76 games in Montreal that hangs in my hallway and it hung in my grandmother's apartment for 35 years. I bet. That just shows you what it means right. to my family, you know? And uh, listen, my, my grandparents closed their store for two weeks. They drove from New York City to Montreal and yeah, they watched their son be, they watched their son become an Olympic gold medalist. And I mean, to wear the stars and stripes after, from my grandparents surviving the Holocaust, from my dad, you know, being born in, under communism in Romania, you know, it's again, by the grace of the game, you know, and we all love sports and we all love the stories that surround sports and, and what, you know, what it does for families, what it does for people. This is the ultimate example of that. I mean, for, for a kid to be born from the ashes of the Holocaust, to be an immigrant in the United States, and then to be a gold medalist for, for the, for America. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. You know, for now, for generations to come, now you have this story, this chronological history uh, of your family. Um, and in doing so, what did you kind of learn about yourself, though? Yeah, it, it's a great question. And, you know, it was really an emotional process, you know, to, to learn some of these details. And it was really cathartic for me, you know, co coming to terms and, and self-acceptance, too. And I write about this very honestly in the book. You know, I had a good career. I was an all-conference player at Stanford. I had a successful professional career. But there's always pressure and expectations, not only from having a father who's very good, Right. But then having grandparents who went through what my grandparents did, you know, I, 
I am given a chance to, to succeed and to achieve. And I always put a lot of pressure on myself to do that, you know, and I did it at a high level, but it's never as high as you want it to be, you know, but <laughs> by, right. by telling the story, by understanding the history and by kind of having my family's support, love, acceptance, and, and all, all kind of coming together around it, it really gave me space to be happy with what I've accomplished in my path as well. So for all those reasons, it's just been such a meaningful experience for me. Let's give our listeners one more little nugget before they definitely go out and purchase the book by the grace of the game right now, Dan, before we let you run, just, I want to clarify one point for people, because I think when people think about Holocaust survivors, it's like, man, those, they got out, they got to America, man, your people didn't leave Europe initially. Right. So just moving around and trying to stay a step ahead of that insanity. Uh, how, how harrowing did it get at times? Yeah. It, and it's the truth. And, and I write about this in the book where, yeah, we're telling the story about surviving the Holocaust, which is, you know, probably the most harrowing experience you can have. But then my family spent more than a decade under communism in Romania. Right. And my grandmother to this day still talks about the brutality. I mean, they had friends tortured, jailed, killed for speaking one word, you know, that wasn't totally in favor of the government or for having a, an item that they shouldn't have. And so and being Jewish, there was a lot of anti-Semitism as well. You know, so, uh, yeah, it was that that part of their lives was also very difficult. And, you know, again, I mentioned my grandmother, like to this day, she's the most loving, warm, happy person. And so I tell people, you know, if she could go through what she went through in her life and overcome what she overcame and still be this amazing person today, there's hope for all of us. I'm sure the family overall so proud. Your dad's got to love this. It's absolutely the best, Dan. By the grace of the game, that's the book. Dan Grunfeld's the author. My man, we appreciate the time. Thank you both so much. I'm big fans, and so it's great to be here with you. Thank you so much, man. We really appreciate it. it. When we come back on the program, Kirk, we we got a unique situation here, my man. Two different dynamics under the same umbrella. We got two football coaches, right, Mm -hmm. Uh, in Freeman that just got the job up in Notre Dame, and then Dion got the job done uh, (laughs) for Jackson State. But we got to touch on both, am I right? Yeah, you got to touch on both. It's two two distinct, different styles of coaching. I would definitely say that. <laughs> it's amazing. A new start for the Golden Domers. And where do things go for Jackson State? Will Coach Prime maintain or will there be some, uh, so, some, so, some grabbing of the possibilities of a man <laughs> out of that situation into uh, some Power 5 universe? We'll break that all down as we continue. So stay with us right here on Forward Progress. You're listening to Sirius XM Radio. Radio. We now return to Forward Progress. Here's Jason Jackson and Kirk Morrison. Forward Progress continues. Morrison Jackson, great uh, to have you with us. We have a story that you may not know until I heard this story about two weeks ago. Kirk, I did not know uh, Ernie Grunfeld's parents had survived the Holocaust. Ernie Grunfeld, a great college basketball player, great NBA player. Um, I'm not going to make any decision about him being a GM. That's up for (laughs) Wizards fans to do. Right. uh, He he held that role for a very long time, held in high regard in all basketball circles for his entire resume. Uh, He's the only NBA player whose parents survived the Holocaust. And and his son, Dan, wrote about it. and the name of the book is called By the Grace of the Game. Uh, our buddy Ray Allen wrote the forward in this thing. 
Um, it, it's 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 amazing, man. Um, you don't think about what's the backstory, right? Everything up front looks so good, right? But one thing about this place is everybody's from someplace. Yeah, man. If you go far back, it's not here, you know, from sea to shining sea. It's somewhere else <laughs> in the world. And some of those stories, like the stories our families, yeah, uh, carry the burden of. And so many of the European families of uh, Jewish descent, obviously from you know the 30s into the 40s, uh, so many of these stories, man, um, are are tough. Uh, Dan Grunfeld grew up good. <laughs> he grew up in a great place. I mean, I played at basketball at Stanford, uh, mm-hmm. and, and it, it's not easy when you pick up the family business, right? His yeah. father being a star in that space, but to take the time. And, and really take us through this narrative um, that has its heartbreak, it has its anguish, uh, it has its fear, it has this emergence, you know, um, this, this Hungarian background of getting through one of the great tragedies of this earth, um, the Holocaust, and, and finding the family's way to this place to make those American dreams come true. It sounds Pollyanna, but it, it happened for the Grunfelds. You know, everybody um, has a struggle, you know, something many have struggles and it may not be like yours may not be like mine's, but no, everyone has something I feel like. And it's what I always look at to say, you can never know what's going on in someone's backyard, right? You, you never know. You can look at them and say, oh, everything looks great in the front, but you don't know what that person is going through or has gone through and what makes them strong. A lot of successful people I know that me and you have been around have all had to deal with something, right? They just don't shoot right up to the to the top. It's like, oh, I, I started here or I worked here or, you know, I was... Um, you know, for me, I was the head of my household early at an early age, you know, with parents who were divorced early on. So, you know, I found my solace in going out and, and wanting to change or want me wanting to make change or want to go out and make money for the family. And I see it a lot in sports as well. So I always say, look, you just never know what someone's going through or what they've been through, but it's always great to hear different stories and hear different perspectives on the way people have, uh, have lived their life. Which turns us to our next topic. It was so great to have him on the program, which is what's happening at Notre Dame. And this move to Marcus Freeman is, is pretty amazing when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been thinking about it for the last little bit from the time we knew that Coach Kelly was headed to LSU to wondering what was going to occur and, and and the feeling is with the Golden Dome dynamic that they, they're going to go and go get a name. They're going to go reach to another program. So I was really, from the beginning, super happy that they were doing something that was good for the players. Right. Like, that's the feeling I got out of <laughs> this hiring first. Absolutely, it represents something awesome for black coaches and, and young black players and kids who dream about being in that position. Uh, but... I, I thought initially about these young men whose entire experience is being shocked, as so many are, 
obviously. Um, but the thing that resonated the most for me was uh, this is the guy, Marcus Freeman is the guy that the players want. Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is, and, and I've, uh, you know, I've, I've loved Marcus as a player, former Ohio State Buckeye, Come played on, linebacker there. But you, you understood his grind. He was a guy that was very smart as a player. Injuries kind of derailed his career, possibly could have had a professional career, but he realized. Um, I've had a chance to speak occasions, you know, and doing football games when he was at Cincinnati. And I always came away and said, oh, wow, uh, this dude's different, mm. right? He's 35 now, but yeah. I'm talking to him when he was 33. And I'm like, he was hey, the this, DC there? Is that, was that yeah, he was a yeah, defensive coordinator at Cincinnati under Luke Fickle, who actually was his coach at Ohio State when he was uh, the, his linebackers coach. And he's kind of, and I'm talking to him and we're just talking and he's like, yeah, you know, I've got five kids. I said, whoa, whoa, brother, you got five kids? Yeah, five kids, wife, man, we love it. And, but you could hear in his voice, everything was always about family. It was about structure. It was about discipline. And then you, we were just talking about background and, and how people have grown up in the family structure. And, you know, his mom is of Korean descent. Uh, dad served in the Air Force. And he grows up and he, obviously he's had the different dynamics of, of the, his, his family household. But he is now the, the face of a major brand. Notre Dame football is, is probably up there with professional sports. And the brand, the brand and its reach, its own network. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, come on. And it is a, it is a a man's a, a black man's face <laughs> that will now run that team. And we saw it before too. It's not like we didn't see Tyrone Willingham, who also was a coach at Notre Dame as well. But I think in this time in this space, Marcus Freeman, young energy, thirty five years old. But I don't want people to feel like that they just gave him the job. They didn't just give him the job because he was a defensive coordinator. They gave him the job is because he interviewed and they say, wait, 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 one second. You, you got to talk to this guy. Hmm. And then they talked to this guy and they said, whoa, 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 appreciate the time. I need you to talk to this guy because if you talk to him and you see him and you listen to him, he's very impressive. And everyone kept passing him along to everybody else just to realize that I don't know if he was on our list, but man, we can't let this guy go. He is what we want. He is what we're preaching. He is structure. He is a, he is everything about college football that I love, right? He is loyal. He is uh, about the players. And that's the reason to your point, Jax, all the players said, we want coach Freeman to be our coach. That's the reason why, because he is a player's coach, because he understands it. He speaks it. And I think I'm just happy because I want to see more coaches, African-American coaches, put in a position to have just those interviews. So it comes into the structure and something that we can get into in many episodes ahead, Jackson. I'm going to bore you as we get to some episodes where college football will die down a little bit, but it's getting those hires elevated to what's the next step. So we need more coordinators to be African-American, and we need more offensive coordinators, defensive coordinators, because we know 
the next step after a coordinator is head coach. But we tired of being assistant coaches. We tired of being a running back coach and a receivers coach and the linebacker. Jax, we want we want the, we want the coordinator position. But no, man, shout out to uh, Marcus Freeman. I think it's an outstanding hire. Um, he brings, I think, definitely a, a gentleman mentality to to the to the fight in Irish. Speaking of uh, head coaches, <laughs> how about Coach Prime? Now he brings a different. He brings different. <laughs> That's he different, though. Be, he just had to be great, <laughs> and then he got his opportunity. Um, Texas State <laughs> wins uh, the SWAC tournament, tournament yeah. championship. I championship, say. yeah. As basketball begins. My mind shifts all the way <laughs> over. Uh, but wouldn't it be nice, you know? <laughs> but anyway, um, before we get into the question of uh, will anybody be able to pry him out of that space? First, here's uh, Tiffany Blackman's interview with uh, Dion after. Uh, winning the SWAC championship. Coach, I believe those are the words you had this team, this community saying when you took over the program and now having brought a SWAC championship to Jackson State for the first time in over 10 years, how much weight do those words carry? This is unbelievable. I mean, it just started off with a, a saying that we really embodied, we really felt. We didn't play our best today, but all our kids gave it our best. So look at this. Look at the community. Look at Jackson. Look at the swag. I mean, we're believing. You can do anything you want to in this world if you just believe and stick to it. And be consistent and confident and walk in it. Man, I'm so I'm so elated right now. This is one thing to win, but to win with our people. Lord, I thank you. You told me at halftime you wanted more takeaways from your defense. Well, you guys got four tonight. What was working for them? The defense is resilient. They're unbelievable. We knew if we scored 21 points, we were going to win. It's no what They're not scoring 21 points on us. No one's scoring 21 points on us. This defense is unbelievable. We didn't have our best game offensively, especially Shador. I think this might have been his worst game. But uh, his teammates took up the psych for him, and we got it. We brought it home. We are, this is unbelievable. Did you see this atmosphere? This atmosphere? God bless But your son's still a leader on this team. How yeah. proud of you are, are you of him and the way he conducted himself? I'm proud of both of them. I'm proud of both of them. Both of them contributed to the success uh, that we have. And Lastly, Coach, season, I got to I'm so happy right now. I'm lost in work. You get to go back to Atlanta for the Celebration Bowl. What's that going to be like? Uh, it's going to be unbelievable. Unbelievable. In Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Yeah. I, I love it. We're going to correct our mistakes. Then we're going to get our game plan together. Then we're going to be ready. I promise you that. Our coaching staff is unbelievable. The fan support is un unbelievable. Our support staff did a phenomenal job. It's not just me. I know they gave me Cody, but this whole organization, this whole city deserved this award just as much as I did. Congratulations, Coach. Thank you. God bless you. Love you, baby. Now, it's going to take something sweet to pry that man out of that space. First of all, he wants to stay warm, right? you got to stay right. around oh, fishing. Yeah. All right. And, and it was, it's not lost on me that he enjoys being in this place with all those brown and black faces uh, and lifting them to a place uh, even higher. The aesthetics of the program, the marketing of the university. Um, what would it take? Colorado State allegedly uh, reached out with interest. Yeah. Uh, do you think there's a scenario that, number one, can hold all that prime, number one, right. and then two, uh, present him with the opportunity to do what he wants to do, which I would think this for him leads more to the NFL than to another college program. Yeah, I would say more of the college aspect of it. I think 
he's going to have to show more and, and go a level up, right? So you have your HBCU, you have your D2, FCS. He's got to do it now at, at a major FBS program um, because what he's done has been remarkable. Um, there's probably a ton of athletic directors saying, well, how do we miss this? He's brought a confidence. He has brought a swagger. He has brought a brand to Jackson State to that you want to watch it. You want to watch the show, right? You want to watch the the band, the, the camaraderie, the community. They led the, you know, they attendance, set an attendance record. 50,000 plus people went to a SWAC championship game. Come on. Never heard of. Attendance record. Dion did that. His players did that. And so, look, I, I don't know what's, what's next for him if, if he wants to do that. I mean, obviously he has his sons on the team right now, so I don't know if he wants to leave just yet. Right. But I do feel like he's making athletic directors have to think twice about hiring a guy like Dion. He didn't have the credentials. He didn't have any prior coaching experience. But what he said was, I have a belief, I have a faith, and I have a swagger, and I have a confidence that we're going to get this thing turned around. And man, in one year, a season and a half, he's put Jackson State on the map. Like, on the map. They'll be playing in a uh, in a bowl game coming up, the Celebration Bowl. So it's going to be fun to watch, you know, his uh, Dion continue this this brand of excellence that he's brought to Jackson State. Man, what we've talked about on this program, what the HBCU needs, more eyeballs, and that's what Deion Sanders has done. I wonder if he really, if he would even speak to it right now. Obviously, he probably wouldn't, like you noted, um, seeing out this season and then seeing out, you know, probably time with his boys. Right. Playing where they were going to go to school. Uh, uh-huh. But but what would be his desired next? That's the thing. Um, that it, it, you, you can understand the climb that it takes within college football, which to me, from here he can go to Power Five. Um, right. But can he? But does he want? Could he want a trip to the National Football League? We'll wait. We'll wait and see. We'll see. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Would that be the uh, first Gold Jacket player to come back and be a coach? <laughs> We've had Gold Jacket. Coaches, right. right, inducted. But have we had a gold jacket player who's taken the coat off to be a coach? Not one like him. See, <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that I can guarantee. Yes. I, I'm like in my head going through the, you know, the, the 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 annals of time. And man, you've you got me thinking. Yeah, you know, man, oh man. Um, it it's it's not it's not common. Right, and I'm, I'm I'm literally like just stalling so I can think of, you know. Yeah, one, it, I one, got you. It's t- it's difficult. But, man, you know we're forgetting about um, man, Chicago Bears linebacker, of course, Mike Singletary, uh, yes. having that opportunity prior. But um, like I said, no one quite like Dion uh, <laughs> would be will literally take it off the gold jacket but still have gold on, and then get that opportunity as a head coach <laughs> in the National Football League. But first, kudos to him in the space in Jackson State. Uh, That's going to do it for us. Another fantastic edition of the program. We thank uh, Dan Grunfeld for coming through. Uh, We appreciate all the great work of Pernell Brown, our illustrious editor and uh, producer of this fantastic program. For Kirk Morrison, I'm Jason Jackson. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you on Forward Progress next time.